Hi everyone, welcome to Outgrow's Market of the Month. I'm your host, Dr. Saksham Sharda. I'm the creative director at Outgrow.co. And for this month, we are going to interview Brian Fanzo, who is a digital futurist at isocialfans.com. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Before we continue with the podcast, I have a special message from our sponsors, microinfluence.co. Are you overwhelmed with being an influencer? Are you running out of ideas for content? Choose from microinfluencers, thousand plus interactive templates to boost your influence and stand out from the pack. Easily understand your followers, automate your engagement and categorize your audience. Check out microinfluence.co now. So, uh, so Brian, we are going to start with a rapid fire round just to break the ice. Uh, you get three passes. In case you don't want to answer a question, you can just say pass. But try to keep your answers to one word or one sentence only, okay? I can try, yep. Brilliant. So the first one is, how long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? Five minutes. Okay. Most embarrassing moment of your life? I dislocated my elbow on a tour two weeks ago. Oh, gosh. (laughs) How many hours of sleep can you survive on? Three and a half. Fill in the blank. An upcoming marketing trend is blank. Social audio. The city in which the best kiss of your life happened. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pick one. Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey? Jack Dorsey. The first movie that comes to your mind when I say the word ambition. Point break. When did you last cry and why? This morning, because my daughter said something sweet to me and I'm a sucker. (laughs) Okay. The biggest mistake of your career? Believing that I need to have my passion figured out before I could chase my purpose. Okay. How do you relax? Hang out with my daughters. How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? One. A habit of yours that you really hate? Uh, I like to... Uh, that's, a, that's a good one. Uh, that I really hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to eat late at night. The most valuable skill you've learned in life. Roll with the punches. And the last question, your favorite Netflix show. Oh, there's too many to count there. My favorite Netflix show would be uh, House of Cards. Okay, well, that was the end of the rapid fire round. You took just a little too long to answer one question, so I'm going to give you nine on ten. And you win a car. Just kidding. <laughs> there's no there's no prizes. Uh, all right, let's go on to the bigger questions now. You can take as much time as you like to answer these. The first one is, tell us one unique thing about isocialfans.com and what compelled you to become a keynote speaker digital futurist? So for me, you know, I'm a, a multi-hyphenated uh, individual. So I have uh, multiple you know, niches and industries that I work across. And so for me with iSocialFans, part of the reason I wanted to kind of build that and go out on my own was that I didn't want to uh, you know, fall in line, I'd say. You know, I think that's probably the, the staple of my career. Most of my career, I consider myself more of a misfit. Uh, not you know, disrupting for disrupting sake, but 
being willing to do things differently and, and, you know, zigging uh, when people zag. And interestingly enough for me, you know, I, I started speaking the first time on a, on a stage. It was actually at the Pentagon uh, here in Washington, D.C. Uh, in 2005. But it really wasn't until almost, uh, I would say, almost 10 years later that I actually realized that being a full-time you know, keynote speaker was a job or a profession. I, I spoke on many stages around the world, uh, both for the U.S. government when I worked there uh, and then for the, the startup that I worked for. And most of that was just part of my role. As part of my job was that I was... Uh, I kind of created a position for myself, which I would consider I I translated the geek speak. So whatever you know, tech or complex uh, projects or marketing that was going on, I would actually be able to you know uh, you know interpret it for those that were you know the techies, the the computer scientists, and then I'd also be able to to interpret it and translate it for those that are the leaders or the executives or some of the you know the uh, ranking military members that I was uh, you know speaking in front of. And so for me, you know, the interesting you know, intersection of all of that was even when I wasn't a keynote speaker, technically what my job was, was do the same thing I do now, which is really, you know, sharing my perspective and making, you know, the insights and information that I'm sharing uh, relatable enough for people to take action. And so uh, it was the natural fit. Uh, you know, I, I like to say my mom says I came out of the womb talking and now I get to do that as a profession, both as a speaker and a podcaster. So uh, I found I found my 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 dream career many many years after uh, getting out of college. But interestingly enough, you know, I started in this path uh, about two years after college. It just took me a long while to come back around. I can tell because you're actually very good at the rapid fire round. A lot of people just tumble or they get lost in thought, but you were actually quite on point. So you worked for the Department of Defense for several years. What was your journey there like? Because you mentioned the Pentagon, right? Yeah, so I worked um, in cybersecurity, interestingly enough, um, and I had no uh, background in cyber from college. We, didn't, you know, I graduated uh, university in two thousand three, and it was kind of like the world's worst time to graduate with a, you know, business information degree with a web design concentration because uh, a lot of the you know internet boom was already happening. There was also kind of a an emergence of different technologies such as WordPress or, you know, even some of the coding, like, you know, I was, I was really good at fireworks and flash and things that uh, were kind of, you know, you know, eliminated. And, you know, I, I got an entry level help desk position uh, at the U S government and, you know, got a security clearance. And then about six months after I got that entry level help desk position, uh, I happened to uh, volunteer when someone came in and said, who can fly to Korea uh, on Monday? And this was on a Friday. And, you know, mm-hmm. and teach this course that we, we were all supporting. And I was just on the help desk and I happened to have my hand up first. And, and interestingly enough, they hear like, oh, so do you have a passport? I was like, nope. Uh, so I had to get a same day passport and I flew to Korea. And each night I, I really studied the material that I had to teach the next day for the active duty military. And I think partially my advantage was that I didn't have to unlearn anything. This was all, you know, cybersecurity was all new. It was, it was new for many of us, but it was also new uh, for me. And, you know, as the story goes, I, I taught that one five-day course in Korea. I flew home. And, uh, you know, that week afterwards, uh, it was presenting me the opportunity to actually take that job, which was about three levels above the job that I had when I came into that uh, help desk. And uh, a couple of months later, I took over a different team, including the person that hired me, uh, ended up working for me. <laughs> and we ended up having, you know, over 32 direct reports. Uh, we ran a multi, you know, $19 million a year budget. And really what my job was, was to get the, the different branches of the military to share their cybersecurity policies, to understand the power of collaboration, to embrace this new emerging tech. So if you can imagine 
trying to get the army to share something with the Navy. And then on top of that, doing it in something that's cybersecurity. And this was even before the word, you know, every time I would say cybersecurity back then, mm. they would just look at you like, what is what? Like, you know, they'd be like, oh, like password or mm-hmm. they wouldn't even, you know, it was such new. And so for me, you know, cybersecurity almost like, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. And, you know, I, I did that for nine years. And interestingly enough, I got out of the government and cyber around the time it was, it was exploding. It was turning into a, a beautiful career, beautiful path. And, and part of that was just because um, I loved the work I was doing, but I knew that the, the, the role that I had created um, was allowing me to be pretty complacent. And I understood that I wanted to have this, this bigger mission of reaching uh, a bigger audience. And so, you know, it was, a, it was a hard decision. Uh, it was a hard decision for me, all, all of my advisors and my mentors, even one of my mentors I still have today, uh, advised against me leaving the government and my clearance. But it was, I mean, it was a great nine years that I did, but I'm very glad that, you know, I decided to step out and kind of uh, restart over at that point because it's allowed me uh, to really pivot and have a broad range of a background, which, which really means I can speak to all kinds of different audiences and all different kinds of worlds, uh, which I'm thankful to have that, you know, that experience. So what do you think of, I guess I'm going to go off script here, but what do you think of the uh, colonial pipeline hack? Ooh, so I'm, I'm in, <laughs> I am in. live in Northern Virginia, D.C. area right now. Um, you know, I, I was actually at the Pentagon when uh, WikiLeaks happened. Uh, oh. And I have some really interesting stories from those days. I did uh, three trips to Iraq, two to Afghanistan, uh, mostly doing, dealing with, you know, securing, uh, you know, basic networks, um, you know, some basic um, computer security side. But, you know, the interesting thing about like even that hack is that, you know, the number one vulnerability in any network in any anything today, and it's been the same since I started in cyber, is it's not the Chinese, it's not, you know, you know, the crypto hackers or the, you know, it's actually humans, right? Humans are the number mm-hmm. one risk. And I think we have a tendency to forget that, right? We, we will, you know, put our password on a sticky note. We will uh, send something in an email without thinking of it. So for me, I'm one of those people that, you know, you just have, we have to kind of own the fact that we are extremely vulnerable as a society, as a, especially as a country here in the United States, uh, you know, from our power grid to, you know, our, you know, even how our, our systems work for traffic lights. And so I think, you know, interestingly enough, it might be, a, you know, as much as it was devastating for, for many for a period of time there, I think it might be a, a better, you know, eye-opening experience for mm-hmm. us to start looking at things in other areas. And speaking of unlearning, how do you think digitization and information symmetry is affecting the world right now as a whole? And how do you think businesses can make the best use of it? Ooh. So, I mean, I think we, we're in an interesting time. You know, I, I think 2021 um, is, a, is a reset for everyone. It's a reset for every business, every brand. It's a reset how we think about information. I mean, 2020, I mean, we all understand what, what went on. It, it was, you know, unimaginable, the idea that the world would, you know, find a pause button and we would be forced to, you know, do things we never had done before, either work from home or move our companies digital. And, you know, I, I have a keynote presentation that I gave in 2012 uh, at South by Southwest. And it was, uh, the whole concept was shrink the distance. And we needed to really understand that, you know, it's not online versus offline. It's not, you know, digital versus what we do, you know, in the real world. It's really this all encompassing world. And we have to start thinking of it that way from information sharing to the way we use apps to even um, the quote unquote balance. Right. I'm not a big believer in, in finding balance. I think balance is a near impossible objective. I actually work hard at helping my clients find a harmony, the harmony between technology and humanity. 
And I think when we think about it that way, 2021 right now is we just need to start asking ourselves questions that we've answered in the past, but we need to answer them with a 2021 mindset, understanding what role, I mean, imagine, imagine the global pandemic without technology like Zoom or without mm-hmm. technology or even without, you know, let's just say basic social media or even without our global database of clients, right? You know, I have a, a couple local breweries that I helped out here and thank goodness they had run a campaign, offline campaign a year ago that people, you know, submitted their email address because when they were moving their business, you know, as mm-hmm. COVID happened, you know, online, they, they didn't even once think about their digital presence, yet they had an entire community that would love to have supported them and probably would have missed out if they hadn't done this one campaign a while back, be able to you know, have that footprint. So I think we are at a reset. You know, we, we talk a lot about pivoting. We talk a lot about change. I think we actually have a, a cool opportunity right now is that we get to reset. What are the priorities? How do we use our information? What is the transparency that we're willing to you know, um, really submit? Because I will... I will make this argument for, you know, from my side is I believe, you know, the more transparent we can get with data, with sharing, with information, the more we can really move the needle because there are a lot of people that would be willing to share information if they understood or what that was being used for, right? And we, we are living in this, you know, world of trust or lack of trust for that matter. And so the, the barrier to entry is really how do we create that trust across everything that we're doing? And I think that what does require a new level of transparency and I don't know if most brands are ready for it, but I can tell you, I believe almost all customers and consumers and you know, even B2B side of the house are demanding it. And so I think that to me is where it's exciting, but it's also you know, a scary ten, uh, you know, place we are at because there's an easy tendency to go back to the way of the, the old and, and believe that our customers you know, aren't as smart as us or the customers were just doing this because it was you know, uh, you know, during the pandemic. But I would argue uh, you know, the, the customers today are, have a louder voice, more information, and more choice than they've ever had before. And it's up to brands, businesses, you know, and leaders to really embrace this new approach to transparency. So do you think then this focus or the approach to transparency is behind the whole, you know, the blockchain revolution? Do you think blockchain in that way, you know, the tokenization of everything is helping that? Without question. I'm a huge believer in the creator economy, the idea of decentralization. Um, blockchain is a space that I've played in for a long time. Uh, interestingly enough, crypto is not. I, I'm more uh, new to crypt- newer to crypto over the last 18 months or so. Um, but I think the, the basic hmm. principle is this decentralization, right? The idea that, you know, you know, we are all, you know, every time we're using a product for free, it doesn't matter if it's social media, whatever it is, you know, we're paying with our data. We're paying with our data, our time, um, the information that we're putting out there. And so when we think about that, there is an element of, you know, freedom, but there also is an element of unknown. And I think right now the, we don't trust regulations. We don't trust, you know, the the different pieces that are out there. And let's face it, I mean, even in the in the crypto space and uh, blockchain space, there are a lot of um, things that can happen there as well. With, you know, the volatility, you know, we're seeing it right now as we speak. Mm. But I think one of the things we have to start to look at this as is we, it's not about us having to control everything. It's just us realizing that there's not just one person or one body or one business in the control of things. And so I think, I think we're going to see a disruption in every aspect of our lives, thanks to blockchain. And I think it's going to be a good disruption. It's just going to take a while because let's face it, it took a long while for us to move to cloud computing, right? From your traditional, like, <laughs> you know, send a CD in the mail and install your, your software to truly cloud enabled. And I think it's going to take a while to us to get there. Crypto just seems to be 
um, you know, the first gateway. I, you know, I participated in Bitcoin Pizza uh, over the weekend. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to the space of this, you know, decentralization. Uh, and I do believe transparency is part of it. I think the other part of it is this idea of we are, you know, now a world without borders. The idea that we can, you know, it doesn't matter where you live, what your background is, we have the ability to connect, share, collaborate but we don't have the other things that are in place to enable anything, right? Everything from currency to even how do we, how do we share information, data? How do we connect um, you know, across uh, language barriers? And I think the more we look at, at something like blockchain, this decentralization, the easier it's going to become for us to unite people, you know, no matter where they're at in the world, which I think gives us all freedom to work wherever we want, but also to find the talent. They don't all have to live in the Silicon Valley for us to, you know, grow a booming uh, business. So it's exciting times. It's also going to be, you know, uh, you know, there always are going to be bad apples actually right behind, right over my shoulder. I have a, a sign uh, that says uh, you can't fix stupid and you can't stop bad people mm-hmm. from doing bad things. And so we're going to see those things continue to emerge in, in some of these spaces. But I do believe that the need for transparency um, is definitely driving the decentralization and focus on crypto and blockchain for sure. And what do you think the future of event marketing look like after everything that it's been through in the past two years? How should an organization or a business prepare for it? <sighs> this, this is one that gets me fired <laughs> up. I'm, I, mean, I, I, say, I say throw out everything you've done previously. Everything you've done mm. on an offline event, just throw it out completely. And start asking yourself, how can I make this event the most valuable for someone's time while connecting it to this digital properties that we have 365 days of the year, right? And, and virtual is not going away. Digital, I mean, we, we proved that in 2020. I mean, I, I've been preaching it since 2014, but I think we all kind of learned that there is this need and desire. And the fact that, you know, the old school way of traveling to a city for a five-day event and spending, you know, three of those days kind of wandering around and then, you know, one day <laughs> networking and I think all of that's going away. Now, I will say the, the people that are the brands, the events that are going to really thrive, I believe the ones that are going to integrate digital and virtual so that they are prerequisites. So they're enablers. Um, and, uh, you know, as a speaker, for me, this is beautiful, right? If I knew that everyone that was attending my, my next session at Mobile World Congress or at Inbound or at uh, South by Southwest, if I knew that everyone had to complete this certain, um, you, know, you know, they had to be in the, in the community for this long or they had to watch this many minutes of video to get to this point. Now for me as a speaker, I can up-level the amount of content and the value that I can provide in the 60 minutes that I'm getting your attention. And I think the idea of serendipity, the idea of networking is still there. I believe, I'm a huge believer that offline events are going to thrive. We are going to mm-hmm. really crave them, but they have to be redesigned. If, it is, if we are sticking a projector and slides on a screen and putting a microphone in front of somebody on a stage, no, I mean, it's, the value is not there. It just, it, we have to reinvent everything from how do we present information? Like, how, why not? If everyone we know has a device in front of them, why aren't we using those devices as part of the way we present on stages, right? How, how, are, we, how are we still living this age where it's like, you know, we text this phone number um, with, the, with the answer to this poll question and we'll get back to you at the end of our keynote, right? Like that to me is still, it's like almost an archaic methodology because we haven't really reinvented 
what this experience looks like for those that are in the audience. And so, you know, when I say that, some people think of like VR and AR, and I'm a big believer in that technology. I still think we're too early for that technology to really disrupt um, the event marketing space. But I do believe we have to rethink everything. Like, I mean, why should a fireside chat be in the middle or in the front of a room? Why would it not be in the middle of the room and everybody sitting around the fireside, right? Like, why are we not taking some of these things? And, and I do believe the money's going to be there. The attendance is going to be there, especially the next three years, at least, where people are just craving to travel, craving to be on the road. Uh, the question is, you know, is going to be, what are the events and that are going to lead the way that are really going to reinvent that event experience? Um, and those that do, I think, are going to be massively successful. But there also are going to be ones that are going to go back to the old school way. And they're also going to be successful in the short term. I just don't see them thriving, you know, in the next couple of years after we kind of realize we can get most of the information uh, via virtual and we can set up our own networking mastermind events. So it should be interesting times, no question. Yeah, I think it's going to be a whole reboot of the industry, like events 2.0 or something. And uh, there was one thing that I wanted to ask you related to this was, so how do you think, uh, you know, there's so many businesses who listen to our podcast and a lot of them want to be speakers at events. How do they go about, you know, leveraging everything that you've said about how the industry is going to revamp itself how do they become speakers and try to like promote their businesses like what kind of value proposition should they be aiming towards like how do they go about doing this someone who's like a nobody right now so i think one of the things that we have to remember um when it comes to like you know speaking i think speaking is uh, actually, I don't think this. I know this. I, I'm a you know I've been very blessed. I've done you know 60 plus events uh, every year for the last five years as a speaker around the world. I've spoken in uh, 76 different countries. And one of the things I think that's interesting right now, like where we are at, is that you know you really have to have a strong point of view and understand what your mission is as a speaker, right? And and the thing that's really important for everyone that's listening, like to think about, is you know. When you're a speaker, when someone gives you the microphone or you get on stage, you're, people are giving you the one asset that money can't buy, which is their time. And, and it's their time and their attention. And I think when we sometimes when we think about that, we think about it as a like, OK, what, what, what is the most things I can get in in this time? Or how do I make sure that they understand my brand or my business? But where I think we're going to move forward, if you're wanting to look for you know, a place to really make a difference, is having a strong opinion, but being able to take that strong opinion and make it relatable for the audience so that you're not trying to convince the audience that they're right or they're wrong. You're just getting them to shift their mindset to think about things differently. And so I think, you know, as you look at this, if you're a brand, if you're a leader or executive, I believe speaking is a massive win for marketing, for sales, for growing your personal brand, for growing the brand that you're working with. But I think when we approach the opportunities, we don't, we should think about it in the sense that what is the impact that I can make on the audience. And that impact might be that the brand might have the stage, but maybe you bring up three influencers in your space and you get, you share the stage with them. Or maybe you really make it you know, interactive at a level that we've never seen before. Not because the interaction is going to make people want to buy your product, but it's gonna make you memorable, make them want to talk about what you're doing and, and really who you are as a business and a leader. And so I think we're gonna see a lot different uh, you know approaches to speaking. I think the old days of, you know, having one story or being, you know, someone that's a quote unquote, just, you know, inspirational speaker, run around the stage, throw things in the audience. I think those days are numbered. I think the ones that are really looking at this and saying, I want to help you shift your mindset. I want to give you actionable outcomes that you can actually take and implement. And then the, probably the last thing I'll say on that is just think about the idea of beyond the stage. 
right? With, with this digital virtual world, it's no longer about what do I do on stage? It's what is the impact I can make with their attention in person so that I can continue this relationship online? And I think if you could, you can really think of it that way, it's not about selling them. It's not about getting them to follow or sign up to your email newsletter. It's rather, how do I can help them continue on their journey with the things that I'm offering online? And I think that is the brands, the businesses, the speakers that are really going to see take stages around the world. And could you give us some examples of uh, up and coming conferences or conferences that you think have real potential? Ooh, so, I mean, I think, we're, you know, I think a lot of the conferences were, were hurt pretty badly with, the, with COVID, right? With the idea that, you know, they didn't have uh, a budget or a mindset or the things set up in place um, to really, you know, prepare. And let's face it, not really none of us did. Uh, so I think, you know, we're going to, I think we have to relook at some of these events, right? Like Mobile World Congress, big event in Barcelona, one of the largest events in the world. I mean, it's, it's an amazing event, but it's very overwhelming. And, you know, do we need to be there for seven days, right? Uh, South by Southwest, I've attended for, you know, every year since 2012, um, and I've spoken every year since 2014. That's another event where, you know, we have to really look at this idea of like, what are these experiences that are popping off in different places? And then the other part is, don't be surprised if you see big brands, big businesses doing a lot of smaller conferences that they've never done before, right? I, I've been a, a speaker with, and, and really uh, IBM has been a client of mine uh, for many, many years. And in one year, I went to 17 IBM conferences in one year. Uh, speaking at 17 different ones. And I remember it feeling so different than what the norm was because the norm was one big conference in Vegas for five days and overwhelm people. And I think the funny thing was, I think IBM was actually ahead of the curve back then when they were doing that because it is about these like hyper-focused networking conversations. So, I mean, I think we're going to see you know, uh, like the DriftCon, you know, Drift's event, I think is going to be a good one. Uh, ConversionCon, I think is a, is a great one. But don't sleep on like the little ones too, the ones that are going to be, uh, you know, maybe already had a great event, but they were more local. There's a there's a great one I've attended, my, my good friend, uh, in it's in Lima, Ohio, Lima, Ohio, where, trust me, you have to Google where it's at. But it's called Social Media Week Lima. And I tell you what, it is a powerful event for small businesses and those in the marketing agency space because it's really hyper actionable and it's been you know it's been seven years in a row the first year I went and had 32 people and last year I believe they were well, well over 500 people in the audience and I think those type of events that we're, we're understanding that hyper focusedness and really how do I create this unique experience are the ones we're going to see emerge and really grow in this new environment. Okay, so last question then. Could you give us or uh, could you give our audience some insight into ADHD? How can we best help deal with the challenges of it as allies? Ooh, that's a good one. I like where you went with that. So yeah, I'm, I'm ADHD super powered. I was diagnosed at 31 years old. I, I turned 40 uh, in two weeks. So uh, nine years ago, I was diagnosed. Um, and just recently, my, my middle daughter was diagnosed uh, as well. And I think you're seeing, you're probably seeing a lot more around ADHD coming to the light on your social channels, and really mental health and self care as a whole. And I think 2020, I mean, it taught us so many things. But more so than I think anything else, it should have taught us, and we all have to look at this and say, you know, it taught us that we are much more alike than we are different. But it's those differences that really bond us and find our people. And so I think when we think about something like ADHD, right, and, you know, when I was diagnosed with it, it was the, it, the day changed my life because 
you know, I was very successful in everything I've done after, uh, after uh, college, but in college and in, in, you know, high school, even middle school, you know, I was constantly told, well, imagine Brian, if you applied yourself or why can't you do this? Like everyone else was doing it. And for a while, even though I was successful in my business and in you know, the roles that I had taken on, I had still felt broken. I'd felt like, like, what is wrong with me? Why can I not focus on this one thing? Or why can I not do this thing? And on that day where I was diagnosed, it was the day that I realized I wasn't broken. I was just different. And so as allies, as advocates, I think we have to just uh, take a, an approach when we're, when we're working with people is to rather than judge or rather than try to get them to communicate or work the way that we want to work with, we have to really work hard at understanding how we can work with others the best way that they can work, right? And so with someone like me with ADHD, I'm working to be better at helping others understand how I work and why sometimes I don't reply to that email. Or if you send me a text, it's not that I didn't read the text or I didn't want to reply, but I look at the text, I'm like, oh, this is a great one. And then I'm going to reply, I'm like, ooh, you know what? I need to do some research before I reply. And I get all down this rabbit hole and then I forget to reply to the text. And it might come across as someone that's like, well, Brian, I wish you'd just care about me and reply. But if they understood like, hey, I, it takes a little bit of things that are, have to be in place for me to operate at my best. And so I, I think we're, we're emerging to a great time where mental health, self-awareness, self-care, self-love are all being something that are taken to the forefront. And I think the thing that we can all do, each, each and every one of us, we hear this word empathy a lot. And I don't, I don't ever want that to become a buzzword because we get, to, we get to decide if it's a buzzword and I don't believe it is. Hmm. But what we must do is we must be able to walk, put ourselves in the shoes of others and ask ourselves, like, how are they handling things? How are those things coming to light? And if you're willing to put yourself in the shoes of others without bias, with just a sense of learning and listening, I think we can do some amazing things to grow as a, as a society, grow um, as a people. And I, you know, for me as ADHD, I, I have turned it into my superpower, but I always like to use the caveat that, you know, it is something also that I deal with every single day. And you mentioned before, right, I, I have a creator coin. It's actually the ADHD coin um, and it's in the you know, crypto space. And the reason I chose ADHD as the name of my coin was because I wanted people to, you know, kind of have these kind of conversations. But I also wanted people to realize that, you know, I'm giving you a, a coin of superpowers, right? So it doesn't matter if you have ADHD, ADHD or not. It's we have to look at our own vulnerabilities and realize that if we can lean into them, the things that we struggle with, the things that maybe we always were afraid to show, if we can lean into them and own them, the power becomes ours. The freedom is ours to tell our stories, to live, you know, our truly authentic lives. And so for me, that's what this is all about. I, I appreciate that question. I, I didn't see it coming and, and that means a lot, uh, you know, just bringing that up. So, you know, for anyone that's out there, you know, if you are, are struggling, you know, the, the thing that I would say for ADHD world is, um, you know, saying things like, I think we all have a little bit of ADHD. That's something that we, we let's try to avoid saying that because it really diminishes those of us that are diagnosed almost like, oh, well, your, your diagnosis really isn't that big of a deal. We all have it. And I think little things like that, just being careful with how we word things, because uh, I think we all have things that we struggle with. And I think if we start owning them and listening more, I think we'd all be amazed how much more alike we are and, and how much more we can help each other out. Fair, but to catch on to the last thing you said, there is actually, I mean, I guess there's some sort of research accusing the millennials of having a short attention span, which is not the same as ADHD. But do you think the age itself is an age where this difference is kind of a superpower in a sense? 
so I, I like to debunk this idea of a short attention span because mm. I mean, how many of us watch you know, Game of Thrones for many, many hours every night? Um, the thing that I think society, what we have right now is we have no time for crappy content. That's what this, this generation has is we have more choices than we've ever had before. Previous generations had a longer attention span because they had four TV channels to choose from. Right. And they were like, well, I guess I'm going to stay on and watch this show where now we have devices and channels and places to connect. And so I think there is a generational spin on this where we just have to, you know, it's, it's not one generation being better than the other or doing things that much different than the other. But you know, even when I hear things like, you know, you know, millennials are job hoppers, no, millennials now just have exposure exposure to other cultures and other companies, and they don't have to work for a company that is in their hometown. They can work anywhere in the world, and they can even create their own jobs. And because of that, it's enabling this idea of freedom. But that doesn't mean I think everyone should be an entrepreneur, right? We've seen that be a, a problem as well. And so um, I think we are, we're in a space where uh, I think it's less about the generations and more about us all owning the fact that we have the decision and the power to decide how we work, where we work, when we work, what we consume, where we consume it. And with that power, we just have to make sure that we are using that decision power uh, to make ourselves better, right? It doesn't mean we're all in on everything, but it also doesn't mean we have to unplug to find um, you know, our great existence. I believe it's about that harmony, right? How do we find the harmony between technology and humanity? I think if we can focus on that, I think that's where the magic is. So building on that, this is the last final question, <laughs> is uh, what would you be doing if not this? Like what you do today, if you had an alternative career choice, what would it be? You know, honestly, I'd be a stay-at-home dad. I, I love <laughs> being a dad. It is the greatest job I've ever had in my entire life. I was 14 years old. My guidance counselor asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, a dad, and he <laughs> laughed and he was like, no, no boys are saying that. I was like, well, I have a great dad. Kids are fun. I don't really ever want to grow up. And, uh, you know, I'm now blessed. I have 11 year old, a 10 year old and a seven year old. And those three girls, uh, light up my life. I get to, you know, be a child. I get to have some fun. Um, while at the same time I get to, you know, learn and listen to them. We had a in-depth conversation last night uh, at the dinner table just about, you know, the idea of where does our food come from and how can we uh, identify new food sources in the future? And this is my 11-year-old daughter leading that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that my uh, the alternative job I would have would be a, a full-time stay-at-home dad. That's curious. That's very well answered because now I've started thinking about what alternative job did I want? And I remember telling people that I wanted to be a librarian in some nice library by Love the seaside it. or something. <laughs> cool. Well, that was the end of the interview. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode of Outgrow's Market of the Month. That was Brian Fanzo, who is the digital futurist at isocialfans.com. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Thank you. Check out, check out his website for more details. And we'll see you once again next month with another Marketer of the Month.